I'm Alicia. Hi, I'm Sarah. We're two English teachers reclaiming literacy through pop culture. Welcome to LitThink. Hey, Sarah. We are here officially at the end of your winter break. Second semester. Here we go. LitThink. We're back at it again. And we're going to start off our season this time talking about a movie called Wonka. Uh, if you remember, you and I first heard about Wonka actually at a teacher conference this past summer. We were attending a session about artificial intelligence in the classroom, and we both were like, wow, these are really cool, like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory themed images this person is using as a template for their presentation. But where do they get them from? <laughs> and... <laughs> One of us said, is there going to be a new movie? And we're like, I don't know. Let's Google it. It's so like we're sitting in this session. And sure enough, it's like Wonka coming to theaters this holiday season. We're both like, oh, okay, check. We'll do soon. What did people do before they could? I, I know the answer to this because I used to not be able to do this. But seriously, what did people used to do in teacher conferences when they were able to Google things on their phone? I don't understand. We talked about the weather. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All those eight, things. Eight yes, it was very exciting. It was a very exciting discovery. We're like, we might have an episode to talk about. And then we went to see it. Yeah, separately, because, you know, I am a little less pregnant. You are a little more teachery right now, <laughs> or, you know, embracing <laughs> your, your time off as much as you could with a sick kid and just holiday chaos right so uh doing it together was not going to happen but as we do we love our lit thing space because we can still come back together and talk about it here right now wonka here we go (laughs) yes so yeah so with that in mind uh i mean as we like to do with lit think we're not just going to gush about wonka we would have in the past but we realize we can be better so we're gonna truly lit think it for you guys and to do that today if we were to bring wonka into our classroom we thought what's really interesting is to think about how wonka fits not exactly into the canon of roald dahl but into the voice of roald dahl as an author because i mean roald dahl i i love i heard an npr interview once with one of his children he was an author who became was able to make a career level income with his writing it's because he had an actual shed in his backyard that uh it was a little garden shed that he turned into a writing studio and every day when his kids went to school he had a ritual where he had to write at least one sentence and uh ian fleming who ended up writing the james bond movies books and i think helped with some of the films uh, they were good friends. So Roald Dahl actually wrote a script for one of the James Bond movies. His wife was constantly traveling as an actor. So he was a stay-at-home parent who was also a full-time writer. I love it. But let's be honest, we know him most for his children's books. And his children's books have very specific elements that are truly Roald Dahl. You know it's a Roald Dahl story when you pick it up. Yeah, and I, I think what I found fascinating about Wonka when we went to see it and, and I, we went as a whole family to see it from the very beginning, as you see Willy Wonka going up on the bridge of a boat 
and starting a musical number from the very beginning, he starts the musical number. It was so funny, guys. Alicia, when she went to go see it, sent me this text message, like from the movie theater when the movie started. She's like, in all caps, it was a musical, and I was in all caps. And I just started laughing because I was like, uh, sorry, I guess I forgot that little kind of tiny detail. But the previews didn't really suggest that at all either. Like I mentioned it. No, so I was like, no. oh, yeah, looked fun. They said, but the musical numbers. They said, the what, what, what? And I said, the musical numbers. <laughs> the musical numbers. You don't even know. But you, I know. But you get this feeling from the very beginning when you see Willy Wonka. That very first scene. It has a road doll feel to it mm-hmm. it feels whimsical it feels like there's a magic somewhere behind the scenes but you don't quite know where it is behind the scenes and i've read a handful like as a kid i read james and the giant peach and i read charlie and the chocolate factory um when our kids were younger we watched the bfg and my daughter read the bfg so like i had enough exposure to to willy Wonka. To, to not Willy Wonka, to <laughs> Doll and his story structure to understand how he tells his stories, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I had a pretty good feel for that. But from the very beginning, it has that whimsy. It has the language that he uses. Mm-hmm. It felt like a Roald Doll story, even though it wasn't a Roald Doll story, but it was a, a story about Roald Doll characters and it was a backstory for something he had created. And I, I truly can appreciate something that takes a canon and keeps that feeling. I mean, that's how I felt about the entire series of unfortunate events television show when they brought that back. Cause it really kept Lemony Snicket's entire, the, it felt like Lemony Snicket, the mm-hmm. whole thing did. And I felt that way about Wonka from the very beginning. So let's kind of a few things you and I talked about off screen before recording our podcast. I, I think we need to acknowledge we've talked about, Matilda the musical here on the podcast Mm -hmm. and that's already proven that doll stories can hold music very well he naturally includes a lot of rhyming in his story we're going to talk more about why we can diagnose this as a doll story but I think it's also interesting because the Tim Burton version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is a film it gives a backstory to Wonka but you and I both said it works, but it's not great. Like it just kind of, it exists. It's Tim Burton adding some more kind of darkness and trauma to his characters so that they have a reason to be the kooky that they are. But what makes this so fun is that it's not a backstory just for the sake of style. It's not backstory just for the sake of we wanted to make a film. Like it genuinely feels like if Roald Dahl existed, he he would definitely put a stamp of approval on these are the thing. This is the way I would tell the story. These are the pieces that you would need to include for it to be by me. You did it. A plus. And it felt very magical yeah. in a very Rhodes all way. Yeah. The imagination and the use of the imagination and how yeah. the imagination plays into that magic. And um, so all of that to say, we wanted to use Wonka to talk about style and tone and voice and teaching that to students because often it is funny when you're starting to teach students how to write and even though and in high school they've been writing since they were since they could hold a pencil right so they've been writing things down since they could hold a pencil but trying to explain to them once they get to high school that they actually do have a specific voice that is true to them, that they do have a specific tone that is true to them, that they mm-hmm. need to find these pieces in both the things that they're writing and the things that they're reading is almost like 
when they get it, it opens a door. Some of them just never seem to get it. But when they do get it, it opens a whole new world to them. And it also helps to point out that we know when they're cheating because we can tell that it's not in their voice. <laughs> well, And isn't that though, like it's some of the battle you and I have fought, I know as co-teachers and then moving on to other schools is of course, students understand they have a distinctive voice in creative writing spaces, but to help them understand that their academic voice is also a distinctive voice. And so therefore, this is how we can catch them when they are plagiarizing. And understanding what your creative voice is helps you better understand what your academic voice is, that they can be one and the same. You're just writing in a different genre space. It, it can be, yes, so beautiful when they get it. But to get them there, it can be tricky. And so I, you're exactly right. We were jumping straight to, as two English teachers, talking about Doll's voice. But yes, let's go backwards. Let's actually talk about voice. And so first, Sarah, I think you, you and I would agree that voice itself means we first have to understand style and tone. So talk to me about what those are. And I can say how we see that style and tone a bit in Wonka. Okay, so first of all, a, writing, a writer's style is the effect a writer can create through their attitude, their language, and the mechanics of the writing. And, and just for some examples, we all know something that is Hemingway-esque, mm-hmm. right? Short sentences, no dialogue or no markers for dialogue. You don't tag the dialogue. So sometimes you can have an entire page of dialogue and you have to guess who is doing the speaking with it. It is quick and easy to read Hemingway because of the way he writes his sentence structure. Um, Cormac McCarthy is the exact same way. They have very different, they have a lot similar styles. Their voice is totally different, but they have very similar styles in the same way. Limited punctuation, very short sentence structure, et cetera. Like those things we know. Um, E.E. Cummings, I think. Oh, E.E. Cummings, I think is another example. Right. And po- and people often think poetry, they think style or they think poetry when they think style, like they think, oh, this poet has a specific style, mm-hmm. but every writer has specific styles. Mm-hmm. And um, to be able to identify that can be really significant. And it, it's the reason why some of us like summer writers and some of us like other writers mm-hmm. It's the reason why I do not like Charles Dickens. I am sorry. I am not a Victorian fan. I am not a fan of paragraphs that are page long and sentences that go on forever. I know he was getting paid by the word. I know this, but I just, he told great stories. He could have told them with half as many words. That is just the way I feel about him. But that was his style. That is how he wrote. Um, and so it's important for, for writers to understand that it's important for readers to understand that. I really think it is important for readers to understand style because it helps us identify what we like and what we don't like. Like Mm -hmm. this helps us understand how, why some things stick out to us and some things don't with their style in pop culture, you know, like there are things you're going to like to watch and things you're not going to like to watch because of the same things, the the same type of, of attitude and language. That's exactly what I was about to say is that, I mean, we need to acknowledge that style is just not physically how something appears on the page, um, but style can also be, I mean, every director has their style, every actor has their style. And so I just went on a Timothy Chalamet rant (laughs) before we started recording because I said, I recognize Timothy Chalamet as Laurie from Greta Gerwig's Little Women, which I 
hate. And this is not because I hate Greta Gerwig. We have talked about Barbie. I There are several of her films that I enjoy. <laughs> Little Women is not one of them. Because how dare you mess with, and we're talking about Victorian era, I love me some Louisa May Alcott. I love her giant paragraphs. She was also paid by the word. She created characters that formed my childhood. And how dare you try to touch them by telling us that Beth is going to die at the beginning of the movie. What are you doing, Greta Garwig? Anyway, uh, so Timothy Chalamet <laughs> was Bud Lori. He was an even better Wonka. And a lot of this is because he embraced the style of Doll in that as we speak about whimsy, we also often have in Doll, we have some character who has this impossible dream that based on their society, based on their their opportunities. I mean, they might be orphaned. They might just be a lower income individual like Charlie. There is no physical, cultural way, socioeconomic or otherwise, that this person should be able to achieve their dream. But thanks to a little bit of magic, thanks to a little bit of whimsy, as you have, I mean, Wonka sings in his whole opening song that he's got holes in all of his outfit and this is a threadbare coat, but we see a purple velvet opulent jacket and we see someone in these high boots who's always wearing a scarf. He looks like a gentleman and yet he is covering up all of this. I mean, essentially living as a gypsy going from town to town as a child. We see all of that is very Roald Dahl style in the way he's going to develop that character in their backstory and then how they choose to move forward in face of the conflict that's been presented to them. I mean, the very end of that song, he ends up literally penniless. Mm. He has no money left by <laughs> the end of the song, right? But he's got and a hat full of dreams. He does. He's a dreamer. And... I think that is very much Rodal, right? He wants to have a character that's a dreamer, even if it is ridiculous mm -hmm. that they are maintaining those dreams. Mm -hmm. um, I think, honestly, that's why I didn't like the original Chocolate Factory with when it was Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, because I know Gene Wilder, it's a classic. But as a kid, I loved Charlie so much and I loved Charlie's dream. And as, so as a kid, I wanted to see Charlie not get into trouble because he's a, he's a perfect kid. He doesn't get into trouble. And to see that kind of fold, unfold in the original, I, I did appreciate the Burton for that reason. It was mm. closer. It didn't mean, this is what's so funny is it, it maintained the story of the original, but did not maintain the tone, mm -hmm. which is very much a, a disconnect that I think was there because it was very Tim Burton-esque. And hey, Which, great transition. Let's talk about tone. Yes, <laughs> bring this to tone. So tone is the word choice in writing that impacts the way the story is told. And I try to explain it to students that is it dark or is it light? Is it happy or is it sad? Um, is it, do you feel like you're going to have something jump out at you when you walk into the room? Or do you feel like someone's going to turn on the lights and it's going to be a surprise party? You know, like, what is that feeling? I'm going to challenge you. I think there's a difference between mood and tone. You're bringing up some mood ideas. It Mood is, right? Mood is how we feel as the reader when we read it. Tone is how the narrative speaks about their experience. Right. I always tell students that too. I don't know why I got that wrong. <laughs> what um, are you doing, but, Sarah? C minus. <laughs> what am I doing? So I know. Um, I always tell students that the tone is about the writer. The mood is about the reader. Mm -hmm. That's how I try to distinguish between yep. the two. Yep. Yep. Now the tone, that those things are, it could be a happy tone or a sad tone. It could be mm -hmm. a dark tone or a light tone. It can be those mm -hmm. things. Um, 
but the way they tell the story is what makes the writer is make, what makes the reader wonder is am I walking into a room is it going to be a happy occasion or is it going to be a scary occasion but it's that tone and the way they tell that story that creates that mood so the tone does create the mood uh yeah so one of my favorite not all the way Correct. Um, one of my favorite yeah. examples of this that I would show students was um, if you've ever seen alternative trailers, um, I show them the original trailer for Mary Poppins. And then if you've ever seen Scary Poppins, they someone has re-edited the original Mary Poppins trailer to make it mm-hmm. present as a horror film. And so what have they done? They've changed the color. They've changed the background music. It's a lot faster clips. Uh, it's a lot more, you don't really see, I mean, you get clips of the songs in the original trailer. It's the bright colors. It's people skipping about. And so you don't really even see the conflict of the family. You just see all of the good that Mary Poppins inspires. And so you see how everyone in the story is feeling. And then the mood, we as the audience, we are inspired to also feel hopeful and optimistic that Mary Poppins can do good, right? Versus scary Poppins. It's going to be, again, is there eh, eh, a lot more of that, that scary tension, darkness. Mm-hmm. We've talked before, Tim Burton has a very distinct color scheme in his films, which speak to the tone of the, sto- of the stories that he creates. Now in Wonka, interestingly, I would say some of the tone comes from the fact that he often has to have uh, his stories told through the lens of a child. Wonka is a little different because our protagonist, Wonka, he's, his childhood is what has brought him to this moment. He's trying to reconnect with his childhood by coming to this place and opening up a chocolate shop to reconnect with his mother who he lost in his childhood. But we still have an orphan child. We have Noodle. So, you know, adjacently, we still have this child who interestingly doesn't have her own dream, who has kind of given up. Willy Wonka has to... invoke his dream onto her and kind of pass it on and then she becomes the rolled doll orphan that we all expect who is against all odds going to fight for what she believes and in a world that she believes can impossibly be better Um, and fulfill a dream she had put away she had put away the dream of seeing her mother Mm-hmm. And of knowing who she is, mm-hmm. you know, her dream had always been to figure out who she was and, the, and to have her mother again. And mm-hmm. it takes Wonka for her to find it again, because yes, usually Rodal has it's through the eyes of a child, but there's a lot of ways in which I think you could argue that Wonka is very child-esque still because mm-hmm. he still is holding on to that childhood because the dream is a childhood dream. And until he achieves that dream, but we also see that in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Wonka mm-hmm. is still very much a child in an adult body mm-hmm. that is living this fantasy over and over and over again. Um, and so, but we see that play out a little bit in Wonka. Mm-hmm. Well, so arguably isn't, I mean, the core of a role doll protagonist is going to be someone who is innocent and kind of grotesquely optimistic in the face of a world that has lost sight of that or the space this character is in the setting where no one around them has any of that. And the, the conflict is created in a dull story by how that person maintains that persona, that identity of innocence and optimism in the face of everyone around them combating against that. Just real quick, the other thing I'd add to tone that we see as far as word choice 
Roald Dahl loves hyperbole. And I think we see this beautifully in our police chief who gets fat in a week because he can't stop eating chocolate. Uh, we see this in the, these uh, three candy makers who are siphoning off chocolate into the secret vaults. I mean, there's all of these kind of goofy things. The fact that Willy Wonka can make hundreds upon hundreds of chocolates in his little travel factory that he takes everywhere with him. Or even the Oompa Loompa mm-hmm. has to be like yeah. extra tiny, right? Versus, I mean, it, it, things have to be extra small or way over the top. That in a night, Willy Wonka creates you know, his shop that he calls a world of our own. And it's it's got the whole garden that he ends up creating in his factory. Um, the, all of those things, I think that hyperbolic, hyperbolic element that functions as a form of satire, social commentary in some way. This is where we get the greedy beat the needy line and how Wonka's dream has to fight that. All of that is the hyperbole that we see in a doll story. And then we see it and um, acted out in this film really beautifully as well. Yeah. I would say the social commentary is definitely the greedy beat the needy. Mm-hmm. And Noodle says that repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like an apt timing of this particular film and that they're trying to point out the greed that is happening between the three chocolatiers that are in control of everything. And can I just say, it took me a little bit to figure out that it was Keegan-Michael P- Michael Key that was playing the chief of police. But when my husband and I figured it out, we just couldn't stop seeing it then. And he, the hyperbole of the way he just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and just loves the chocolate so much. It was, it was fantastic. I, I really enjoyed watching him grow and play up that role so well. He just played it up in great ways. You've never had chocolate like this. Can we also talk about the Broadway chocolates? I mean, again, you're going to talk about like a hyperbole, the whimsy. I was, so I mean, I texted you in all caps. You didn't tell me it was a musical. It's partially because then I was like, where are these chocolates in my life that I eat this chocolate and my whole life becomes a Broadway show? I'm here for it. (laughs) Uh, Please. That'd be great. Ultimately, I, I think... We can talk a bit more about voice, but the part of why we talked about style and tone first is because voice is a combination of the two, right? Style and tone. That is how we see an author's voice ultimately presented in a piece. Well, and the voice is who the readers hear mm-hmm. talking, right? They It's right. what they hear. Um, and you can hear that sometimes in, in media, you're going to... In, visual and audio media you're going to hear an actual character that's telling the story right um but in a book you're going to hear it through who is telling the story is it going to be our third if it's a third person narrator that is a little bit detached there still is a voice there we're still hearing a story being told or it could be the first person narrator too but it is that comedy but it's got to capture both a specific style so whoever the character is, they have to capture that specific style and they have a very specific tone to it. Um, I think a really good example of this, and, and I know that there's a lot of controversy still about teaching it. And I, I don't, I'm not a huge proponent anymore of teaching Huckleberry Finn, but as someone who loves Huckleberry Finn, that is a perfect example of voice because you hear Huck and you hear Jim through that entire novel. And both of those characters are capturing in very specific ways the style which for Mark Twain was trying to capture the dialect of the region. So he's trying to tell a story while also capturing the dialect of the region. 
that is part of his writing style. And that tone is critical. Like he's being critical of the world that these two characters are, are living in and embodying. And because of that critical tone of the culture that they're both living in and because of the dialect that they're using, that's capturing the region, that's their voice. And it's these two characters and the voices of those two. And so we see that playing out in everything. We see that playing out in media, like I said, and in this case, this is Wonka's story. Eventually it becomes Noodle's story, but this is Wonka's story. You know, he's telling this story about how he has this dream and this is how he's going to keep holding on to this dream. Well, and to add to that, then in Wonka specifically, one of the biggest ways we're going to see voice is sure it's, it's Wonka's perspective, but then that means we don't meet a character until Willie meets that character. We don't experience a certain memory or, you know, sit through a dance number until Willy Wonka is inspiring that dance number. So all of those ways, the voice of Roald Dahl has to first be captured in Willy Wonka. And I think that's what you and I both said Mm -hmm. as we were talking leading up to this episode, Willy Wonka had to be done correctly for this to be a true Roald Dahl story. And that's one of the things you and I both loved was again, Timothy Chalamet. I can't think of some a different actor that I would want in place of him in this role. He did such a fantastic job. I just chef's kiss. So well done. Caught, I think all of these pieces of Roald Dahl and ultimately what he's trying to achieve in any of his stories, it's still captured here. And I know when it comes to a film, we're talking about script writers, we're talking about directors. There's a whole family leading up to the actor themselves that's portraying a role. But I think that this whole team that put together this specific piece, very well done. I applaud them and what they did. I, and I agree that this was probably the best thing to talk about with Wonka, honestly, and talking about style and tone and voice, because it really does capture doll in ways that we saw when we did Matilda, you know, when we talked about Matilda, it was the same. It was, I mean, we dealt with a different theme with that one, but we felt that way about the musical version, the film musical version of Matilda is that it just really felt like doll had his fingers in the pot, even though he has been long dead, but it just felt like he had his fingers in there. And it, it felt that way with this one too. My which mommy was says delightful. I'm a miracle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> songs that weirdly end up on my, my birthing playlist and then they come on and what was I thinking? It was so ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, uh, very side tangent. Here's kind of, I think a good ending note as we're talking about style, tone and voice, this is something as you and I said, it can be so magical. Speaking of magic, when we can break open this opportunity for students to truly understand this part of themselves as writers, both creatively and academically. But let me ask you, Sarah, what are some of the things when we're asking students to find their voice or to find, if we're saying analyze the voice of the specific author or whatever, what are some things you would encourage them to do? I think I start with, if I really want them to work on their style and their voice and trying to find their voice, I really try to start with stories that speak to their personal experience Mm -hmm. because there's a danger in telling inexperienced writers to write like you talk 
Mm-hmm. Now that is what you want them to eventually do. But there, the mm-hmm. danger to that can be depending on how they talk when they're with their friends, what kind of, how are they going to write this thing? Right. Mm-hmm. But you want to feel natural. So you want it to not feel like it's not words that they would use. And mm-hmm. I think that's, I run into that problem when I have kids that try to make themselves sound smarter than they actually are. And it's not even that they're smarter than they actually are. They just try to make themselves sound smart and they're smart kids, mm-hmm. but they're like, I need to find these really big words from, you know, I need to put these into a thesaurus and find these really big words so I can impress you. And I always tell them, stop. Like I had that problem with these big research papers I was grading back in December. Cause I was like, I had a couple students. I just called them up to my desk and I was like, do you know what this means? Because I don't know what this means. <laughs> and I don't think you know what you're trying to say. And then they would rephrase it and it'd be so simple. And I was like, yes, that is your thesis. And they're like, but I wanted to sound smart. And I'm like, but you didn't. <laughs> but the way you said it this way sounds smart because you actually are saying what you want to say. And so, like I said, there's this, there's this kind of fine line between writing how you talk and writing in an academic way, how you talk and, and making yourself sound formal, like you would have a conversation with an adult. But the big thing for me is that they're able to speak to their personal experience. Cause if they're able to talk about personal experiences, that that's when hi- writing how they talk comes in really handy. Cause then they can put dialogue in there and they can try to capture how they felt in a given moment. And some of the best writers do go off of their personal experience. They may not be writing fiction that is about their actual experience, but there it speaks to who they are. Um, and you don't want to get super autobiographical with people's writing, but you can often see phases that people are going through in their lives based on what they're writing at a given time. So a, a few things first, the, like writing, how you talk, I think um, interesting again, in the context of academic writing, one of my friends who's a teacher has recently said that's one of her biggest clues that a student is actually using AI is when they start to have giant verbose words mixed into their writing. So it's not even just plagiarizing. I mean, it's plagiarizing, but it's a different form of plagiarizing. Uh, but then I also think it's so interesting how technology has shifted. I grew up in the era of being able to type out my essays in Microsoft Word and I could just right click on a word and word would recommend synonyms to me. This is the day that I showed this to my friends and they would always pick what they thought was the biggest sounding word. And I would ask them, do you guys even know what this means? And they'd be like, no. And I said, I, I love, I mean, in my creative writing, I obsessively and poetry too. I try to not overuse specific words. That's how I think you tell a good story. Someone once told me, the way you show your intelligence is when you can name things. So when you have a name for lots of different things, AKA nouns, when you vary those, that's how you, you show your intellect actually more than just right. Like throwing in giant words. Um, but yeah, now kids, they still, have, they have to, it's kind of gone backwards. Instead of having a physical thesaurus, they have to go to thesaurus.com or something. <laughs> they have to seek out the giant words or, you know, type it into an AI or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think, to your point about speaking to personal experience, there's a reality that there's a way you can still do that in academic writing. This is something we challenge students often to do in an introduction. This is how you can you know, connect a classic as you ease into your thesis. It's a big thing you can do in your conclusion as you try to make the main point of your essay 
relatable on a bigger world or cultural level, that's still speaking to your personal experience because it's something that you then can connect to. It's how you made whatever you were approaching into something bite-sized and approachable for you to even write about it. Well, I think that is true about research writing too. Like if they're writing a research paper, they're going to find it more meaningful and they're going to write something that's more meaningful when they have a personal connection to it. Now I try to warn them not to find something that they're so incredibly passionate about that they can't see the opposing side. Like if you can't see nuance in the issue, then maybe we should find something else. But if they have enough that they, that they can connect to it. I was shocked by the number of kids last semester who wrote about cell phone use Mm. and how cell phone use was dangerous (laughs) and Mm -hmm. social media and fashion industry, like things that they actually are a part of their daily lives and a part of who they are as human beings, but that they wanted to dig into that. Mm. You know, they, they really wanted to find out more about how their own practices are impacting the world around mm. them. Mm. And, uh, and those were the ones that were, they felt authentic. You know, it felt like they were really trying to speak to something that mattered to them. And, and it felt like, good solid writing with a good solid voice mm-hmm. to it mm-hmm. so and that's it is uh it's tricky research it's is tricky but the more they do is what you're pointing out right like um argumentative research i think is an yeah. even greater opportunity for students to bring in voice because yes as soon as you have an opinion i mean that's part of speaking from personal experience your opinion is often based on something about your life that has inspired you to yeah. your, your beliefs in some way but my favorites I, are the ones where they actually change their mind. I love it when they do research and they change their mind on the research when they're like halfway through. And I'm like, huh, you actually had to do some research. And so now you think differently. That's interesting. Why am I, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's one of my absolute favorite poets. He wrote the poem, What Teachers Make. And he talks about that in one of his other poems. He also wrote How Falling in Love is Like Owning a Dog. That's going to drive me nuts. Anyway, yes, he is a liner. He says, like, one of the most beautiful things about teaching is when you can change a student's mind. But, all right. All of that to say, Wonka, highly recommend. It's currently in theaters as we are recording this. Definitely a fun holiday film. Great family movie to take out everyone to and go see this weekend or whatever you're going to do. Um, or just, you know, treat yourself. I saw a movie by myself in the theater for the first time over this holiday. And it was a really fun, different sort of experience. Uh, but on that note, Sarah, why don't you go ahead and tell me, what are you enjoying right now? I had to dig into my Goodreads. I was really proud of myself for 2023. Um, but one of the most recent ones that I have finished is the memoir, How Far to the Promised Land by Esau McCauley. Um, he talks about growing up in Alabama and growing up mostly without his father. His mom was mostly a single mom. His father had a, a lot of drug problems and left their family behind for much of his childhood. And so he didn't have a relationship with his father until he was way into adulthood. It was when they finally started healing that rift. But it is beautifully written. It is a beautiful memoir about what it is like to grow up black in the South. And as someone who's only a few years younger than me, like we're the same generation. And so to know how different his experiences were from mine experiences growing up in the Midwest 
and what it was and the challenges that he, they talked about the challenges that he faced, not as a way to be like, look at how far I've come. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, these are the challenges I faced. And I got out despite the challenges that I faced. Mm-hmm. Like I somehow, I, I was one of the lucky ones. And he talks about being one of the lucky ones and how he has classmates who didn't get out um, for a variety of reasons and not always because of something that they did. Sometimes it's stuff that was done to them and it just, but it's also a beautiful book about healing. Cause he, there was healing in the relationship with his father eventually before his father died unexpectedly um, a few years ago. And so, yeah, I just, if you want a good memoir that talks about race in America, it is one of the best I've read in the last year. So I, I, I really loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, and totally different, totally different. My husband went to see Aquaman too. Um, it is a pure popcorn flick and enjoyed it for being what it is. It was just fun. It was just fun. And I'm not a DC fan. Like I'm just not a huge DC fan, but Aquaman, I, it's just good. It, it's just fun. You know, you just have fun with the story and, and Jason Momoa. I was but, like, Aquaman is very pretty. That's what you mean. <laughs> he is. But he also is really funny. Like he just, he he plays his looks in a way that you're like, but yeah, he's still pretty funny about this. Like he's still, he's still having fun here. Um, and Nicole Kidman's in it. And I love Nicole Kidman. So like you get some, some good vibes from her. And yeah, so I enjoyed it. We... I wouldn't say that's one I would want to watch over and over again, but if you're just looking for a really fun superhero popcorn flick, I think we're all kind of superheroed out mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Cause there was that whole period of time where we were watching the superhero movie after movie after movie. Mm-hmm. And the, the backlog is pretty much petering out with both Marvel and DC. But again, if you just want something that's fun and you don't need something to take seriously, it was a little bit heavy handed on the environmentalism and you know me i'm all green earth all the time so like i'm like that's but it just was a little heavy-handed but i think it was heavy-handed on purpose i don't think they were trying to overplay it too much so and that's part of what aquaman always was in the comics so yeah yeah, because you know there's that whole symbiotic relationship between the earth and the land and or the land and the sea and the whole thing so yeah anyway what about you what have you been enjoying I'm going to have to make this quick because I have a human being who is telling me that it is is time to eat. But uh, for me, uh, similarly, I was proud of myself with my Goodreads list. But one of my favorite books I read this past year near the end was uh, Lessons in Chemistry. Beautiful audiobook, but also just such a fascinating fictional story on a woman's role in the field of science. It's a story about sexism in historically in the workplace and culturally the role of women in the kitchen and how that can actually be a place of empowerment. I mean, it's, it, there's so many layers of how women, how we tear each other down, but how we can build each other up. So, I mean, there it's feminism, it's sexism, it is historical I mean, just abuse in all of its forms, but at its core, it's a story about a mother choosing to leave a legacy for her daughter, uh, which is something that 
I can find very beautiful and powerful these days. So I uh, highly recommend that book. And then uh, His Dark Materials, uh, we recently got a subscription to Max. So you know, talk about backlog. This is now I'm catching up on all the shows that have existed, but like, oh, I don't have a Max subscription. So uh, I read the His Dark Materials series back in middle school because someone told me like, oh, hey, check it out. And then I said, you know what? You guys are banning Harry Potter like crazy at my little Christian elementary school, but you guys are letting these books sit on the shelves, which are ultimately a story about how God needs to die because he's corrupt. Now let's clarify the stories. The series is a lot more complicated than that. It's ultimately a narrative talking about identity and the soul. And there's kind of some magic realism playing into all of that. It's very beautifully done. And I was really, really impressed with the series. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda is in every season. So that makes it kind of fun. It was a quick watch as I was sitting here half awake after just having a baby and uh, trying to write Christmas cards and different things like that. So I recommend both of those. And just a quick reminder that you can check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Lit Think Podcast and subscribe to our Substack newsletter. This has been Sarah and Alicia signing off. Keep on lit thinking people.